Well, it's good to be with you here this morning, and uh, we're working and we're on our final week uh, working through the story of Samson. If you don't mind turning with me, we're in Judges chapter 16 here this morning in a kind of a four-part series just unpacking this story. And as I was thinking about kind of this next section, a, kind of a, a thought came to mind of a statement we often use, and maybe you've used this before, we've mentioned it before here in church. This statement is, do what I say, not... Yeah, we're all guilty of it on one occasion. Either we've heard it or we've said it ourselves. And so often you think about that, it's often said just kind of joking around with our kids. It's kind of a, a silly statement. But if you think about kind of the root of that statement, it's kind of a sad reality, isn't it? The idea that someone knows the right behavior, they can even communicate it to someone else. They know it well enough to communicate it. They're aware that they're being watched, that those around them are watching, but yet they don't have enough self-control to actually practice what they know is true. It's kind of a, a sad reality that I think perfectly describes Samson. It wasn't a lack of information. He knew the right thing. He had been brought up with it. He was rooted in it kind of as a child. But then here he has a, enough information where he could actually communicate it to others. He knows very well as the judge over Israel that he's being watched. You know that as a leader. That's one of the, the most common sense things. But here's the thing that happens is he's lacking the self-control. He literally just operates completely in the flesh. Wherever the next urge takes him, that's where he ends up. It's actually a sad story. If there's ever a kind of a, a, an account that's kind of a, a reckless example of how to just train wreck or tank your life. I was thinking about this as it relates to this morning's, and I, you see the title there, How to Tank Your Life, because really, if you were to write his memoirs of his time of leadership, 20 years, that, that this would be the summary, How to Tank Your Life by Samson. Like That would be the, the title of his, his memoirs, because he's so good at just moving from one poor decision to the next. My wife, one of the things I really appreciate about her uh, sometimes is uh, she, she tends to, uh, if there's ever something negative said about somebody, she always flips it to something positive. I mean, even in traffic, like I'll be like, oh, that jerk just cut me off. And she's like, well, maybe they're having a tough day. You never know what they're going through. I'm like, honey, I get it. I get it. Just let me be unbiblical. Uh, but uh, so, 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 so here, here's, the, here's the idea. Like even someone like Adrian would have the hardest time finding any, I'm sure she could, finding many or any redeeming qualities about Samson. There's not a lot here. I started out thinking like, oh man, there's going to be some nuggets to pull that are positive from his life. And I'm like, no, actually it's just a, just a, a cautionary tale basically. But the neat thing about God's word is you're just as easy to learn from people's what? Mistakes as from their successes, similar to our lives. So it, the things that we watch and you're like, oh, I'm never going to do that. This is one of those mornings that you're getting a lot of, uh, I'd never do that with maybe one final glimpse of something positive. So we ended last week's story. You remember, pretty dramatic victory over the Philistines, taking out a thousand Philistines with literally the jawbone of a donkey. This is a unbelievable kind of a moment where you could think, well, this is maybe, he's given credit to God. This is maybe where he's going to turn in the right direction and, and lead Israel back to the Lord. It's not so much. In fact, it's just the opposite. When, when Samson's not busy rescuing Israel, Samson 
is Israel. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now as Adrian prayed and asking for you to meet us exactly where we're at this morning, God, that this would be a chance for us to put away distractions and we'd really encounter you through the study of your word. We invite your spirit to be moving and working through this text. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter 16, first big idea is you conclude how to, how to tank your life you conclude you're invincible. We'll start in verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazite, Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. All right, we'll, we'll stop there. A lot to uh, uh, unpack there. For, first off, we're told that he went to Gaza. Little that we know about Gaza, this was deep into enemy territory. It's right on the coastline, a port city that was known for being literally having countless options for compromise. Kind of what Josh had challenged us with a couple weeks ago is the importance of not finding yourself in enemy territory. Then we're told it says he saw a prostitute and went into her. And here's the sad thing. Actually, there's a lot of sad things about that statement. The sad thing about that statement that's upon first notice is that that doesn't even shock us, right? You're like, yeah, there goes Samson again. He's just being Samson because he's gone so long operating, being just functioning in the flesh that there's nothing that you read about his demise that you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't shock us. And just to be clear here, when he says that he goes in with her, it's not like they're not having tea or anything. We're all adults here. We can kind of piece that together. So he's operating in the flesh. It becomes his, his normal mode of operation. And here's the problem with Samson at this stage of his life. And this is why I titled that, You Conclude You're Invincible. This, at this far in his life, he's had so much success Despite poor decisions, he's come to the false conclusion, well, I must be invincible. I must be beyond touch. You know, I've, I've played with fire this long. I keep tinkering with it. I keep sampling it. And God keeps coming to my rescue. And here's the problem with that mentality is you can slip into that same thinking today. You can dabble in your sin and you can look at the landscape of your life and you can be like, man, Everything seems like it's going great. Seems like things are going just fine. I keep succeeding. I keep seeing things prosper. Man, there must be that God isn't that concerned with my actions. That's the mistake of every kind of sin pattern that you can fall into, is you start to think like you can compartmentalize things. You're like, well, if I do this, but God's not that concerned because look, he just keeps on blessing me and coming to my rescue. See, Scripture tells us an important truth about God's kindness to us. His kindness was meant, designed to bring us to what? Repentance. But instead, it so often brings us to arrogance, 
to self-confidence, to saying, you know what, I can do this. But we're about to find out that just because God was kind to him and rescues him in this scenario wasn't because he wasn't noticing these moments of compromise. It was only postponed ramifications. Scripture is real clear about this as well, that God disciplines the ones that he loves. And so this is a postponement that we're about to see. But in a miraculous fashion, much like in a past stories, a part of Samson's life, he gets an opportunity to display his incredible strength. So you see it in the, in the text there at midnight. These guys are there waiting at the gate and they're planning to wait there all night. Samson leaves and literally goes to the front entrance of the city and lifts the gates off of the beams, literally putting them on his back. Can you believe this story? Here's a picture of uh, one of the side entrances to Jerusalem when we were just there uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, this is kind of a smaller entrance, but it wasn't uncommon at all in a larger city to have gates that are like two stories high. And literally the, the, the strength of a city was determined by the strength of their gate and the reason why. Well, the, 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 con, or the, the block walls all the way around, they were plenty strong. But your city was only as strong as you had made your gate because you're like, man, that's the, the first point of entrance for an attacking a military. So if you were to take the gate of someone's city, that was like basically having victory over them. It was like the, the ultimate slap in the face because you've left them virtually defenseless. It's kind of ironic that uh, Samson's leaving himself defenseless in the, in the middle of all this. But regardless, he takes this gate. We don't know the exact size or dimension. All we know is it was most likely very large. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made it as good scripture. So this large scripture, it says that it takes it from Gaza to where? What does it say? Hebron. Now, one of the fun things of being in Israel is getting to see where all these different locations are and learning the distances. Guess how far that is? 40 miles. 40 miles. We get all excited. I ran a, I ran a marathon, you know, 20 plus miles. Sam's like, dude, I carried a city gate on my back. You're 40 miles. Now, some, there's some theologians that are just like, well, he just made it up a hill that was facing Hebron. I don't know. I don't like that part near as much. I think it's cooler when he went 40 miles. So here we go. So he's there, and the guys, it doesn't tell us what happens with the guys in ambush. Notice that there's no mention of them. They must have seen this playing itself out, and they're just like, uh, this guy's carrying like two tons on his back. Let's just leave him alone, you know? We're all right. We'll go back with our families. Either way, he has the opportunity to escape despite just another super stupid decision. God delivered Samson once again from his enemies, unfortunately reinforcing his false notion of invincibility. Continuing verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. We've all heard of her. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. Catch that? And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Interesting little uh, turn of the story. First time uh, so far in the account that, it, that mentions uh, Samson loving someone. Now, ladies, 
uh, just getting your opinion here, based on Samson's past relationships, what do you think his potential for genuine love is at this stage of the game? Do you think he's, got, he's on the right track? Or do you think the guy, that kind of guy you want to settle down with? Not so much. Not so much. His love, and we're about to see, is all kinds of twisted. It's, it's, it's polluted, it's perverted, it's messed up, and so much so that he doesn't even recognize unrequited love. He doesn't even recognize he might be crazy about her, not so much her about him. And you're like, how do you know? Well, because she's willing to accept bribes to take him out. You see, it says that these Philistine leaders, and in that, that day and time, there was known to be five different regions, five different key leaders. So most likely here, five guys showing up, offering 1,100 pieces of silver each. It's doing a little research on that this week, and the average income for someone was about 100 pieces of silver a year. 100 pieces. So basically, each person was giving them what? Is that 11 years of, of wages? So 55, there's my math, 55 years of wages in one shot. She's like, all right, I'm in, I'm in. And you see, she's about to become very wealthy. And notice something about this. Notice that these guys don't just make the suggestion. They know exactly what she should do. What do they suggest that she should do? Just go and seduce them, seduce them. Here's the, here, here's the part that I want us to take from that. Nobody knew the source of Samson's strength, but Everyone knew the source of his weakness. Nobody knew the source of his strength, but it was common knowledge. Like it didn't take much to know like, oh, this is how you can take him out. Just seduce him. That's all you have to do. So we personalize some of this today, think through that so often, the world around us can be completely aware of some kind of a pattern of sin in your life. Everybody, you're actually known for it. People are say like, oh man, when I think of them, I think of this. And somehow we're okay with the idea of just, just kind of ignoring that. Ignoring that fact that the whole world definitely sees our area of sin. Talk about a surefire way to tank your life. What are you known for that you ignore? Anger issues, arrogance, gluttony, dishonesty, insensitivity, racism, flirtatiousness, crude joking. I don't know what sin pattern it is for you that everybody else can point to in your life, but that's a surefire way to tank your life when you're just like, yeah, that's just, that's just who I am. I'm just going to accept that as part of my identity. And here Samson had to clearly embrace that. I see in verse 6 that it doesn't go well for him. It says, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. She's not real subtle there, is she? She's like, huh, okay. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. There's an interesting thing about bowstrings. A bowstring that was taken from an animal's innards. Once again, in that, he's touching something unclean, breaking his Nazarite vow once again. I'll become weak like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had been not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in her inner chamber. Awkward. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. 
Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound them with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me now how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head, you guys notice how this progression, all of a sudden bringing hair into the conversation, and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight. With a pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Basically, we're seeing here kind of a sad progression of compromise. She's not very subtle in her attacks. Hey, what can I do to bind you so you can't get loose? You know, you're like, well, why would you even listen to that? So you have to ask, and maybe as you're reading this, you want to scream at him through the pages. What do you want to scream? Stop it, Samson! This isn't going to go well, right? Don't you want to yell that at this guy? You're like, are you just stupid? What are you doing? So I want to propose two reasons why you might wonder why he's willing to keep on kind of sampling or playing with fire. Why is he willing to keep on making these compromises? And two suggestions. The first one is this. Talk about something applicable. Even the strongest person becomes weak in an ungodly relationship. Even the strongest person becomes weak in an ungodly relationship. You can have the best intentions. You can, you can think this is going to be just fine in this relationship, whether it's a relationship with the opposite sex or it's an unhealthy friendship, whatever it is. That's why there's so much warning in Scripture about this. Remember when I was, uh, Bill, you can bring that chair forward. I remember when I was in uh, camp growing up, they had this illustration, and for some reason it's uh, stuck with me for so many uh, years, just this, this, this picture. And so the, this picture, maybe you've seen this before, and Bill's kind enough to be an example for us. So I'll stand here, you stand over here, Bill. Uh, and so here, here I am on this, this chair, Notice the wobbly knees. Oh, you guys look great from up here. Uh, but notice, if we're in a tug-of-war match, even though I've got age and looks on Bill, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, honestly, who do you think is going to win this tug-of-war contest? Am I going to be able to pull Bill up to this chair? No way. Bill's going to flatten me on this front of this thing if he gives a good, in fact, yeah. So there's, you weren't supposed to do it, but there's, no. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Um, now leave. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but you get, get the picture. It's the same exact idea that makes sense for a little camper named Scott Kegel to actually click that it should make sense for us as adults. The idea, we're not going to pull somebody up to us. It's more likely that they're going to pull us down. That's why scripture is so clear about the bad company ruins good morals. Bad company pulls us in that direction. My wife in uh, college, she had a really close uh, friend, actually uh, a girl that just loved the Lord, was busy serving, involved in, in all kinds of things with the church. And 
She stayed in touch with her. And the, the girl is interesting because the girl took kind of a, a gamble on a young man. Believed that he saw potential. He had some interest in spiritual things, but hadn't ever embraced Christ. And she ended up marrying him. A few years back, my wife and I had a chance to, to visit them and uh, their, their home in Phoenix and spent some time with them. And it was so interesting to me because in their home, he, he had never embraced Christ. It was interesting to inter interact with them over the, the course of the time spent with them and just seeing like, man, their, their kids didn't know about Jesus. There's no, there's no picture. I mean, there's no, nothing showing signs or evidence of, of, of God, anything to do in their home. And it was just heartbreaking to watch this reality play out to be true. That it doesn't matter how strong somebody is, if you're in an ungodly relationship, it's going to pull you to places you didn't think you were po it was possible for you to go. Samson here had his confidence in himself, and obviously he's not going to win against Delilah. So that's one reason. Second reason I propose why he's willing to kind of uh, play with fire or kind of uh, dabble in this is this one. I, this was by Timothy Keller. He says, hooked on danger as he was on women because it has always meant more glory for him. He's as hooked on danger as he was on a woman because it's always meant what? More glory for him. Look at, think, think about how this story plays out. Every time he gets tied up, what happens? He gets to snap him and look how great I am. Uh, I went in to sleep with a prostitute. Doesn't matter. I carried the city gate 40 miles. Like every time it's an opportunity to build his legend. Yet you're wondering, you're asking yourself, you're like, oh, where is the person in his life saying, Samson, don't do that. Don't keep playing for, with fire. Even though you haven't gotten burned yet, it's inevitable that it will happen eventually. It will happen eventually. I had an example of this some years back. I was visiting it with some, uh, at a friend's house, and I was with another friend that was with me, my friend Joe, and uh, they had, uh, the, the people that were visiting, they had one of those little chihuahua dogs, you know, the little, little ones that have major egos, you know. And, uh, and, and the owner said to me when I was coming in, they're like, uh, just be careful because he is known to, to, to nip a little bit if he, if he gets aggravated. Those are like famous last words. So, so the, they're saying that to me, and I'm there, and I'm kind of just kind of trying to pet him, just mess with him a little bit, slash antagonize him. And, uh, and so I'm there, and the whole time my friend Joe's like, hey, Scott, that's not going to end well, man. I'm telling you, that dog's going to bite you. I'm like, look at this thing. What's it going to do? So in this like cartoon slow motion moment, like I'm bending down, this thing runs up my body the whole time, biting me, chop, bap, 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 ends up landing on my arm. I'm standing with my arm extended and is just holding on, on my arm. It was unbelievable. And I remember when it finally like fell off my arm after all the damage that had been done, I'm just standing there with blood dripping everywhere and, and I'm just mumbled. I'm like, Joe told me not to mess with it. It's just uh, the, the regret was there, was there. I was like, what, what in the world? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, if someone was there for Samson, say, what are you doing? You can't keep playing with fire. It's not going to end well. For all of us, as we're trying to glean things from this present day, it's the same exact idea as you can't do this and not expect to get burned. Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? 
Oh, man. You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And listen to this, verse 16. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She just wouldn't stop. Verse 17, and he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called to the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. Stop with this section there just for a moment. I don't know if you do this, where you play back in your mind certain conversations from your day. Anybody else do that? And you think to yourself, oh man, I, I should have said this. Oh, if I could go back, I, I would, this would have been my response. When she said, how can you say I love you and not tell me your secrets? Why didn't he say, how can you say you love me and you do every clue that I give you this far. Like, honestly, like, isn't that what you're thinking this? Like, who are you to talk about love? But instead, the, the, the reality is he actually chooses to tell her her secret, his secret. Tell the secret, the idea that he was a Nazarite. He'd been set apart from birth. God had set him aside to be different, to be set apart. His whole existence was designed by God to help free the Israelites from Philistine rule, to move them out of the land as conquerors. That was his call on his life. And you wonder about this. I found this interesting. Just think about it for a moment. Telling her, telling her wasn't the sin. Telling, telling her wasn't the sin. You're like, oh, wait, what do you mean it wasn't the sin? You know what? He should have been announcing from the mountaintops the source of his strength. You know, I'm set apart by God. It's the one and true God. He's the one that can be a rescue to anyone that calls on him. I'm set apart because of him. He should have been announcing it from the mountaintops, but instead he's in the wrong place with the wrong person at the wrong time in a place of compromise. So it may have not been a sin, but it sure was stupid, right? It sure was stupid. And so many times in our own life, it's because of what? It's because of boundaries weren't in the right place. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. That's exactly so often you hear of different moral failures, whether it's a, 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 a church leader or if it's a leader of a family. So often you're just like, oh man, if you wouldn't have been there to start with. If you wouldn't have been there to start with, where were the boundaries? Where were the guardrails? Or as a staff and elder board right now, we're working it together and kind of mapping out even just some practical boundaries for us. Like not different things that we'll, we'll say, you know, these are non-negotiables. Once we have that established, I'm anxious to share that with you. But that's our heart is making sure that we position and set ourselves up for success, not failure. Here he had let down his guard. You can't underestimate the power of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, take heed lest we fall, and he did fall. It says the last words there, it says, she made him sleep on her knees. 
Verse 19, we'll continue. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and, and his strength left him. And she said, Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, listen to this, he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow and again after it had been shaved. Stop there. Basically, he woke up to what? A fresh haircut, right? Fresh haircut. All of a sudden, the very last thing, the only one out of the, any of his vows that he had held on to, he made the conscious choice to elevate the love of a woman over his commitment to God, and he's seeing the outcome. Scary statement I pointed to there. He did not know that the Lord had left him. I don't wonder even in our own lives how long it would take us to recognize if God actually stepped aside from us, if he released his hand from his presence from us, how long would it take you to notice? In Samson's story, it didn't take long because his enemies were right there just waiting in the chamber to take him out. So cause and effect, and truth is, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, even as Chad was pointing to earlier in the service, the idea he set up camp inside of you, he's not leaving you. But here's the reality, though, is often his hand of discipline, as is mentioned in Romans 1, is that he can remove his protective covering from your life and allow the cause and effect to run its course. Do you know what I mean by that? He allows the, the outcomes of your own decisions. He's like, all right, if that's what you want, I'm going to step away and allow you kind of the same ideas, common sense things. What happens if you stand in front of a moving bus? Splat, that doesn't go well. Jump off of a, a big building, doesn't go well. To run into a burning building, doesn't go well. Fall asleep in the lap of Delilah, doesn't go well, doesn't go well. What does it say happens to him? He gets his hair cut and literally his eyes gouged out. Like, I, I don't know. Like anybody else, I see even when I say that. Anybody else with your eyes, like there's an extra sensitivity. Even when I say that, I have a hard time not squinting. Like there's something about anything with your eyes. You're like, oh man, just, just stay, stay away from my eyes. Anything but that. And you think about this outcome throughout the whole course of the story. What was the primary source of Samson's problems? His eyes, it's kind of interesting to look back. You can do this on your own. It says like, oh, he, he saw this, this beautiful Philistine. He had to marry her. What do you mean you have to marry her? Like she's, she's a part of the, the people group you're supposed to be moving out of the land. Well, he saw the, saw the lion after he defeated it. He had to go and check out to see his, what he had conquered there. He sees honey that looked good, so he has to take something. He sees the prostitute that, that, that he goes in to visit. He sees all of these things. The object of his eyes is now coming back, and they're actually taken from him. It says his eyes are, are gouged out, and he was sent to, to push the, in the mill. This is the idea. When we were in Israel, here's kind of a, a silly picture of Adrian and I pushing a grinding mill. This is actually a stone that they'd recovered that was from that time period. And the idea is this. It's kind of on, on a center axis, and you push that wooden thing, and basically the, the stone goes around in circles, and anything underneath it, whether it's grapes or olives, 
are crushed. So you can draw the, the, the liquid from, from those. And so basically this idea, pushing the millstone, is basically his new reality. And here's the reason why a blind slave made the very best mill pusher possible, because they could do it from sun up to sundown and never get dizzy. Is that interesting to think about? The fact that they could just go in circles, that would be no problem. So this was a, a specific purpose. He made the ultimate slave now. He was strong. He could push this and he could do it without needing to take breaks for feeling dizzy from the task. Other interesting fact about that, primarily most often this was rigged up and set up that a donkey was rigged to the end of that wood piece going in circles. Isn't that ironic that now he's the, the donkey in this story? Pretty sad reality as you think how this has played itself out. He's been turned over to the outcome of his own sin. See how the story continues. Basically in verses 23 through 31, I'm going to do a little bit of summary. You're obviously welcome to read along with there. But basically the Philistines have this huge celebration. 3,000 kind of key peoples in the, coming together and celebrating, throwing a, a party in celebration about what had happened. They use the, the words that says, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Isn't that a sad reality? When, the, when we fall, when we collapse as Christ followers, when our moral compass gets off track, guess who gets to celebrate the enemy and guess who gets glory stolen from him, our God. That's the other negative outcome so clearly seen here. When they get a little bit drunk, they bring it, they send for Samson to come out and entertain. We don't know exactly what that entertainment looked like, but I'm sure if you're Samson, this was the lowest possible point in his life. All of a sudden being a laughing stock, literally, of his enemies. Mocking him, watching him with no eyes, stumble around in front of them. What a sad place to be. Interesting thing there that happens. We're told in that, this section that what happens in this moment of weakness where he's brought out, he asked for the servant boy that was guiding him around to place his arms in front of the primary support beams of this structure, most likely on an upper garden be above, them, above him was this party happening. He's in this structure, gets his hands placed on there, and we see in the text that at this moment, and most theologians agree that this was most likely his point of salvation, in this complete moment of weakness, he calls out to Almighty God. You see, finally, when he has no eyes, he's finally able to see clearly. He refers to him, our Lord God, or Yahweh Adonai, meaning Lord and Master. Give me one more opportunity to avenge my eyes. I find interesting about this because Samson, in this story, you're just like, man, I'm still not seeing much noble about Samson. Like, yeah, me neither. But here's the, the one thing, if there's any redeeming part, he's found in Hebrews chapter 11 in this description of all the heroes of our faith from the Old Testament. Is that kind of fascinating to you? You're like, wait a second. How did he, how did he make that list? Hebrews 11, 32 through 34 describes him, and it says something about him, that he was made strong in weakness. He was made strong in weakness. 
And the reminder of us in this story, and this is the fascinating thing, it tells us that he is all of a sudden flooded with strength, able to push these pillars over, took out these 3,000 Philistines, finally fulfilling more in that act than he had in his lifetime of this call to release and to free the Israelites from Philistine rule. In that one moment, God comes rushing in, floods him with strength one last time to fulfill his call on his life. Thinking about that, and you're like, "Well, then, then who's the who's the hero in this story?" How often have you guys heard me say this before? How many heroes are in this book? One, Samson is not the hero in this story. Almighty God, who in His kindness is willing to take a knucklehead like Samson, who finally, at his lowest point, when life had literally knocked him down. He just on a bended knee calls out to God and in God's mercy, he comes to his, es- uh, to, to his rescue. We can't ever, ever underestimate the mercy of our God. So I could spend a lot of time talking about this, this lesson, this cautionary tale about things that, like, things that you don't want to tank your life. And uh, for sure, there's some things, applicable stuff for us to take away there. And there's definitely t- a talk in here about not squandering uh, what God's entrusted to your care. Definitely messages about that. Lots to say about that. But I would rather point us to the reality of, man, the most important thing we can lear- learn from Samson is his willingness to finally humble himself, and lean into the mercy of God. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. There was nothing about Samson that was noble. Guess what? Last week I said, Samson's the story of us. Well, there, there, there's nothing worth celebrating in me. There's nothing worth, sorry to hear this, uh, nothing worth celebrating in you apart from the grace of God that we've sung about already this morning, his rescue, he came down, absorbed all the consequence that Samson deserves so that grace could be extended and forgiveness given. That's the amazing God of the story of Samson. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this account, although sometimes as you're reading this, a sad story, sometimes hard to Imagine the stupidity and poor planning, poor decisions, poor responses that were extended in this story. But really, when we think about it, how much that highlights your grace, how much that amplifies what an amazing God you are, that you're right on the other end of our call out to you. We praise you for that reality, God. We praise you now in song. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. I'll tell you what, I sure find it encouraging that Samson made the list of the redeemed. Doesn't that give us hope? You're like, man, if, if he can make it in, that's good for all of us. Man, I'll tell you, don't leave today without getting that settled. If you've never bent a knee and embraced him as Lord and Savior, we'd be thrilled to talk with you, pray with you following the service. Otherwise, have an amazing week and God bless you.